0: Welcome to Black Writer Therapy, a podcast where Black women writers are invited to sit on the proverbial couch, have a cup of tea, and share the stories behind the stories and what it really takes to write books about Black women in an industry that still prefers white as the default. I'm your host, published author and unlicensed therapist, Alishine. Black writer therapy
1: is now in session.
0: Nancy, who's waiting to see Ella.
1: Today, award-winning USA Today best-selling author N.D. Jones is here for her session. She lives in Maryland with her family. N.D.'s desire to see more novels with positive, sexy, three-dimensional Black characters as soulmates, friends, and lovers drives her to create paranormal romance.
0: Sounds like N.D. Jones is ready for her session.
1: Ms. Jones, Ella will see you now. Hi,
2: I am so excited to welcome N.D. Jones, USA Today bestselling writer of Fantasy and Paranormal Fiction to Black Writer Therapy's Proverbial Couch. Hi, Miss Jones. How are you?
3: Happy Saturday. Thank you for having me.
2: You're welcome. I was really, like I said, I was truly shocked when you said, yeah, I'll do it.
3: Yeah, we're, I'm telling you, I mean, I was honored. I'm sure most of the authors that you invite were also honored to be thought of to to want to have a conversation where I always jump in the opportunity to say yes, especially when it's a a fellow sister author who wants to engage in a a discourse, a dialogue. So yes, so thank you as much.
2: Are you a full-time writer and or educator?
3: I am a full-time educator. I am a professional development specialist with a local school system in Maryland, and Mm -hmm. I... Right part-time. Even when I was progressing through my doctoral program, so it was quite a bit of a mental shift to go from writing fiction one day to writing scholarly works and reading scholarly journals. Yeah, I, I have trouble going from novels
2: to short stories. So I couldn't imagine and I'm so serious, I couldn't imagine going from like fiction to academia and like keeping it all straight. But Honestly, and and we'll get into this a little later, even your fiction is scholarly. I appreciate that so much. But before we keep going, I need to ask you, how are you?
3: That's a great question. I mentioned that I'm a professional development specialist. So during the pandemic, we went home around March of 2019. My then executive director said, create something that our teachers really need. Well, social, emotional intelligence, resilience. I work with a a lot of white teachers. It's a predominantly white school system. We are really a strong middle, upper class, white dominated school system. And all these teachers are stressed out for obvious reasons. And they did not all have the best coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. to deal with not just what was going on with the, with the pandemic, but just life in general. And at the same time, Trump was in office and everything with George Floyd trial was going on. And right. I'm watching it. I'm getting this heavy dose of it. And everyone around the world was protesting. And so it reminded me of something I already knew was it is hard being a Black person.
2: i so- then again for the people who are not wanting to hear that statement.
3: So oh, absolutely, it is really difficult. I mean, not just the police brutality, but so many different aspects of our lives. and I'm thinking, you know, you have these white people who don't have the level of social issues, concerns, not saying mm-hmm. they don't have any. I don't want to deny anyone their experiences, but it's not the, to the degree in general with the intersectionality of systems of oppression that we experience. Yes. And so if you layer it with everything, of what it means to be a Black woman and this, that was the first time I combined my academic knowledge with the fact I'm a fiction author. I combined those two in what I call the color of my resilience, one on Black men and Black women. I have statistics about the why, especially education or mm-hmm. health. And so stuff like that, I actually find therapeutic and look at seven different types of self-care. And there's a reflection there. There's a self-assessment. I always use myself as an example because I'm clear about my areas of strength as an individual and my areas of growth. And so one of my areas of growth is that physical self-care. Really getting away from the computer, getting Up out my chair, consuming enough water, going to bed at a reasonable hour. I still do not do that. (laughs) I do not go to bed at a reasonable hour and I do not exercise enough. That's like one of the best byproducts of, of
2: knowing that you're on a healing journey, that life is a healing journey. For me, at least, that's what I have come to understand, that we're here to heal. And not just ourselves, but those with whom we come in contact. I absolutely love that you said, I know my areas of strength and I know my areas of growth. Others would have said my areas of weakness.
3: I would tell you as an educator, as part of what we talk about as far as having a growth mindset, I can tell you, just being really honest, is that before I said those words, I had to Flip it in my head to make sure I didn't actually say Aries, um, weakness. It creates an invisible barrier that manifests itself in real life. So, so
2: give yourself permission to be vulnerable because I like being transparent, honest, human.
3: I think you used the word vulnerability. And I think it goes to the heart of when we work with people. Up. Right.
2: Look, we already start talking about all kind of stuff here. Sorry. No. This is exactly what I love about this concept. I'm a firm believer in giving voice to those whose voices are not always amplified and not always heard and uplifted. And I don't know exactly how far my podcast is going to go, but I am willing it to be a major Form of literary revolution because that's what it's really about. It's revolutionizing the the literary scene. That's awesome. You've talked a lot about your professional development and working with people, helping people grow. Your two nonfiction books, and I think I read that you
3: have a coloring book. I think it's like I don't know, maybe no. a year or two ago, I mm-hmm. started coloring book series there system, a mix. And today's the release of my first grayscale one, Sci-Fi Portraits. It's first book in my Afrofuturism series, uh-huh. the AI text to image. And that's what I actually used to create the grayscale coloring book.
4: How did um, it work for a- you?
2: Because my gosh yeah, sucks. I don't know what I'm writing nine times out of ten. Instead of
3: writing I decided to learn this this other piece, so mm-hmm. I, that's where I am right now. How much of
2: your education background translates into your writing, either process, style, and or
3: both? The need for equality, social justice, cultural proficiency, cultural intelligence. I did my dissertation on cultural intelligence Mm. and having a respect for history and family. A lot of that bleeds naturally into my writing. The last few books, it's a reimagining called Barely Go. It's a reimagining of the Little Red Riding Hood story. The the major issue that I write about is huge in society today, especially for, for women and Black girls. And before I wrote that book, I said, okay, you're not trying to write anything really serious. All my stuff is serious. I don't know why I try to end or trick myself, but I think it's just because that's just who I, I am at at heart. And I wind up going deep with with whatever the topic is, this is something that needs to be, to be written, even if it's done through a fantastical paranormal lens. I don't write with like whatever the flavor of the month or flavor of the year is. I never will because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't fit my spirit to do that. So I think that's how it all fits in. Just my my general personality. Those big themes always find their way into my my stories. You are the fourth
2: writer that I've had the pleasure of speaking with this first season of Black Writer Therapy. And when I tell you that you all mirror each other in that sensibility, I thought I was going to start off just writing a blah, blah, blah. However, it didn't feel right or it didn't align or I felt like these voices needed to be put out there. You are perfectly segueing into first segment I like call intentional writing that we black women writers write intentionally have you heard the medical definition for intention it's the healing process of a wound so when we're saying i'm setting my intentions or i'm doing this with intentions what we are saying is that i'm doing this as a part of a process to heal it has to align with my spirit if the flavor of the month doesn't fit my spirit. I know that's what separates us and allows us to be so impactful,
4: even in a a system that has no place for us. I'm getting ahead of myself. So. Can I tell you what I heard that you did not say? What is that?
3: Okay. So you said that I was the fourth. You said I was the fourth author who kind of like frame their why in, in mm-hmm. the same way. And so what I heard that you did not say is that these are all authors that you personally chose. So I don't know if you consciously or unconsciously chose authors whose energy perhaps aligned closely with, with yours in a certain way, because the commonality, beyond an that we're all writers, is really you. So that's what I heard that you did not say. Well, I did. Wow, I I didn't even think
2: about that. And I don't know. I'm drawn to energy, and so again, if the energy isn't aligning. And it was very, very strategic in in asking the women that I wanted on the show because there's a certain type of writing that I'm drawn to, and so it's the writing that hits the mental, emotional, spiritual physical I, I need writing that touches all the bodies and so i guess
4: yeah i guess that's it interesting so when i asked what book was most cathartic for you you told me that it was math debt's cloths Ma- i'm just gonna put this out here the first book that i read of yours
2: was the first book in the Death and Destiny series. Okay, A Fear and Faith. And I met Asifa Berber and Tanura Williams. And I think I, I messaged you on TikTok and I was like, girl, you got me out here looking for a big black and gray stripe. <laughs> okay, I was looking. I loved him. I was looking for him. And I was just like, I read through the series. I was like, how does she fit all of
4: that? What are you doing? So I said to myself, I'm ready for this. I've read three of her books. We chat a little bit on TikTok. I'm ready for this. And D, I wasn't ready. I was not ready. I wasn't prepared. I I am still bru- broken. I am putting myself back together slowly. That book, it needs to be taught, but in high school, like that needs to be, if I were teaching still, that would be the first book I taught in my American Lit class. That would be the first one I taught. Because it's just that amazingly written the kids would pour over it they absolutely love it but more importantly they would get a sense of how and what and the scale that i haven't
2: read anything that that does that for the understanding of of that time period
4: like yeah I, i wasn't ready I wasn't ready. I'm still trying to to get it together. Please tell me how how is this book the most cathartic thing you've written thus far?
2: And I'm going to look at you because I need to see your face.
3: So you know, that was a difficult question, and I never asked myself
4: that question. But this is what I know. There are scenes, and you know because you've read
3: them, that made me cry as an author as I'm writing
4: mm-hmm.
3: A Queen's Pride is the first book in that duology, and so Moff, that was a very really strong supporting character.
4: And I didn't know what her story would look like, and it was a part in A Queen's Pride in which she revealed that we had been a mother and that she had children. But it was a plural.
3: Now, again, I didn't know what these nameless, faceless children, her nameless husband would look like. And so, as you know, when you write the next part or everything that went unanswered in the first piece, I now had to answer. All of that Mm -hmm. and had to align and had to align well. And so I had to build a family. And in building her family, I knew I had to take them
4: all the way. And so so I don't want to shortchange it like at all. I wanted to create fully functioning, fully
3: featured individuals. And so when I took them away the impact would really be there but not a cheap impact I don't write for cheap impact but in everything it was for me when I even though I'm writing these fictional characters I know that real people live these experiences and so I write it with so much respect i and it's so we talk about the research. So I did all this research and I, I create certain characters based on either a particular person or a particular personality type, you know, all type of individuals that, it, that existed.
4: And some of the research, it was painful to do the research. But I made myself do it
3: because I tried to be as authentic as possible within the fantasy setting. And so... I'm reading it and, and then and it's making me angry, you know, reading this stuff. But I always tell myself, and I've said this before in other places, if a person could live and experience X, I could at least read it. I could at least pull it into myself and then rework it in a certain way. And and like you said, give voice to it and honor it. And that's what I do. And I feel it really Deeply, and so that so that's how that's how I I write, and it's it's super important to me that I get it as close to right as as possible. And uh, the me that wrote the Death and Destiny trilogy is not the same me. There's like about a ten year difference actually, but. A lot of honoring went in into that, and and then I had to think about what resilience looked like, sound like, how it really came forth, and there's so many different ways in which a person can be resilient. Mm-hmm. And I was really deliberate about showing that not just the moth but so many other other characters as as well.
4: Mm -hmm. And
3: I had to get to a place in my writing
4: in which I felt okay with killing characters. And not just like killing characters, but I mean, like... Yeah. Like, you don't...
2: Like, these are the, the characters that had to die. Yeah. It's just like...
4: Like that's that. It was so hard. It it was hard, and it was hard to write. I remember sometimes
3: I I, I remember telling my husband. I said, you, you know, with her children, that so I had to give her children and all this stuff, and I knew what I gave to to her, what I had to do with them. And I remember telling my husband one day, and I was preparing to write, and I said, okay, I'm off to you know write this next section,
4: and I. Have to kill a kid. He's like, "What?" And that was my thought. I was like, "This is what I'm about to do." But
3: their their life before their death mattered,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but their death mattered as well. So yeah, these are like some of my favorite scenes because of the emotional weight of them. We know that stuff happen. And uh, so, yeah, I would just take particular pieces of that whole brutality as far as the Native or the Indigenous people of this country, even parts with the trail of tears and the killing of the babies to so-called spare them. And that goes to to our history of enslavement as well. It's so much violence in the history of this country that we still don't talk about. We still don't acknowledge.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, As I'm speaking, I physically feel the weight of the actual people that went into
3: providing the research, the foundation, and the details of that, of that story. It's so much there, and it's, it's one of those books that I know that would never be this huge, big, consumable
4: You know,
2: needs to be, and I am not just saying this because I am not one to ever blow smoke and try and make people feel great. That book needs to be taught at at the college level, at the high school level, because
4: the way in which you you tell this horrific story, because the reality
2: is, you brought it all the way full circle, allowing. Moffat to live to be a hundred and some odd years old. So we're in like the 2000s at the end of the book and it's still here. Maybe those people are not here physically, but that experience is still coded in the DNA of, of their current people. And the way you wrote this, you somehow created a literary wormhole and sucked me back to 1801, and I could not, I couldn't move forward until the years moved forward in your text. I couldn't get up from the nightmare until Moffat was able to come out of the nightmare. I try not to read the blurbs when people say, "Oh, this is my most cathartic book." I just look at the cover and then I start reading from there. I'm trying not to fangirl here. The fact that you had the field day and the human. And I was like, I went on some transcendental stuff. I was like, wait, what is she saying here? Because I knew who the field day represented and I know who the humans represented. So, this field day is that ability to transform or transmutate. Is that like saying, hey, we still have our soul intact, our humanity, our sense of connection? And unfortunately, the humans have lost theirs. And that's why they're able to do the things that they do. Like I, I went there, I was asking that question, and I was looking at all the names, and I'm a
4: girl for names. That's where she get these names from? What do they mean? So, like you, I'm plugging
2: names in. And I oh most of them came from the Shola. It's
4: like You're so smart. I love smart
2: writers. I love writers who write for smart people. I love smart writers who write for smart people because you send me on a little hunt. I don't know. You just it the book. As painful as it was, it was also very beautiful. Their little family, their little precocious twin girls, and the older, very sassy girl. I was like looking forward to her shifting. I was looking forward to her first transmutation I fear she never got it because of the gas and I mean I was coughing and choking right along with them it was I don't get this experience unless I'm reading the kind of black women's fiction that I love reading and this is why I love reading black women writers. Because it doesn't matter if you're writing fantasy, paranormal, romance, mystery, literary, whatever you're writing, it is still teaching, it is still healing, it is still giving voice to and honoring, and it is all those things that most writing could never do, and yet like I'm going to say we, we do it
4: without thought. Um, it's an instinctive approach to writing. Would you say? Hey. I, I would say yes, but I think it's also
3: I know there's things I'm really deliberate about. I was thinking the word that popped in my mind's relationship. And I'm very conscious and deliberate about how I choose to cultivate relationships. So when you well, so, you know, if you just look at the character of Moth, that she was a wife, she was a mother, she was a daughter, she was a friend, she was a neighbor, and so each of those are different aspects of who she is, the same way that
4: we are many different spokes in the wheel that make up who we are as individuals, and so
3: Depending on the character that was a certain type of relationship, and so I want to I had to ask myself, what does that relationship look like? And then I had to mm-hmm. want to string her along because I wanted her to be a certain type of mother, not a, not a perfect mother, but I wanted that to, to really you know shine through her motherhood and, and then her being a wife for all of that. So I, I think relationships. That's where really what, in my opinion, moves a book. That's what allows people to be drawn in. Yes, they may like the action. Yes, they may enjoy the romance and in, in love scenes, whatever those may entail. But I think what make each of those points impactful are the relationships that tie all that stuff together.
5: Mm-hmm. So that's
3: where I find myself with, Work all of with all of the characters and trying to weave, weave that together, and I try to visualize everything that I'm writing. I think if I visualize it well, then it comes across mm-hmm. on the page, and that's why sometimes when my books are long. <laughs> but I I will continue to 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 write until. It comes to a full natural conclusion. Some people say, "Oh, you have to write x number of words." Well, I don't write x number of words because that's not natural. So, a story will tell me when it's when it's done. Okay, now I'm going to go back
2: because you know I'm going to go and read. Which, of course, I know is backwards, but I'm going to go ahead and read it because I like. I I I think I get a pretty interesting perspective doing it that way. I jotted down some things I, I wanted to throw out at you, see what you had to say, kind of rapid fire.
1: Oh, no. The
2: um, that 15 second thing? Oh, no, no,
5: no, all, no, 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 no.
1: All guys, Black Writer Therapy will be back. We need to take a quick break to pay some
5: bills. 27%. Any guesses what that number means? Is it the number of people in the U.S. to listen to podcasts? Actually, that number is 24%. Well, in 2017, that number has increased exponentially up to 64% in March of 2023. Podcasting continues to be on the rise. It is the place to be. Only 27% of podcasts are hosted by women. Only 27%. Are you as shocked as I was? Just think of all the voices we are missing. Is your voice one of those? Is there a topic you keep thinking about? A message you know needs to be shared. Guests you know you want to interview, or maybe you're an entrepreneur, and you know that you want to help others get to know you better and know what you do. Podcasting is the way to do it. This is why I founded Authentic Connections Network, a podcast network that is so much more than you'd imagine. We take the tech and stress out of podcasting. We give you the power of a network, the power of community, education around podcasting, of coaching, individualized supports, and all the other incredible women breaking through and changing the landscape of podcasting. Isn't it time you realize your dream? We believe strongly in our creators. We believe in Ella Sean and in Black Writers Therapy. There are conversations that need to happen, stories that need to be told. Authentic Connection Network is a place for them. Follow us on Instagram at 37 by 27 Comment the word amplify on any of our posts, or DM it, if that feels better to you. I want to learn more about you and your goals, and how maybe you can be part of Authentic Connections.
1: Welcome back to Black Writer Therapy Podcast. Paranormal fantasy writer, N.D. Jones delves deeper into Maftit's Claws with host, Ella Sean. This is Don't not the game. Mm-mm.
2: That's not the game. Yeah. Get me stressed already, <laughs>
4: I was looking at it like
2: right versus might. Like, um, obviously, there was a right and a wrong. but Right didn't prevail. Like, you know, people are looking, especially in fantasy books, for right and good to prevail.
4: And, and you, no, 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 why not? Outside of the authenticity
2: and the accuracy, but this is fantasy. We want right to be right.
3: So, because sometimes it feels wrong to write it that way. So when you mentioned the Death and Destiny trilogy, because it really wasn't based on any particular historical, I felt totally comfortable going all out, and the bad person got, was that <laughs> what was coming to her? And that's this type of book over here. But then when you have this other type of book that leans into a historical truth, it always feels dishonest to give a undefeated win if it just doesn't fit right. But you can give smaller, nuanced wins. Mm-hmm. It's not this big, huge win, but most things in life aren't. Right. I gave her that couple of really big wins. She had a bound family. And then the whole part with her daughter and getting her daughter back, that's a win. We're seeing that now in so many aspects of lives. When you think about yes. Ukraine, for example, bad people are winning, even if the Ukrainians win some of these skirmishes. So no matter the result, they lost. So much of their country has been destroyed. Yeah. But if Mm -hmm. you follow certain individuals, you'll see certain smaller
4: wins. But the bigger picture is not a win at all. Very good. Okay. Feminine power and capacity. Yeah. Most of my, all my books, strong female lead sometimes. And so
3: that strength comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's like that physical strength as far as like if I make a witch and they have power but that's only really one a- aspect of it I like to show it in their character as well I especially like to show their character but don't get me wrong I, I, I love it when I create these scenes and they just get to meet someone who really deserves it <laughs> and I'm like a violent person or, you know, but I'm like yes I'm going to do something really awful what creative way can I have this person be defeated and really, like just have their butt kicked, but no, I, I think when you talk about a strong black woman, a strong female character, I think that's that strength needs to be a three dimensional full wrap around person, not yes, in a one singular kind of way, and that strength does not mean that that person cannot be vulnerable. It does mean that that person doesn't have experiences of confusion or that they aren't wrong sometimes. But strength isn't to be narrowly defined. And I love reading books. I love watching movies or shows in which you have women and they show the full spectrum
4: of what it means to be a heroine.
2: Thank you. Cause that's what I you know, I was getting at the capacity. So we have feminine power, but it is the capacity that you write
4: through, right? You give them the capacity to be whole, full, and real characters, real
2: women. And because uh, I don't know a woman who isn't strong that doesn't cry.
3: Exactly. You know, I don't
2: know a woman who is strong and doesn't ask for help. Like, and I love that, especially, you know, with Moffitt. I love that she she doesn't allow herself to be soft around everyone, but she gentles for Hondo. She gentles for her, her girls. And, she, you know, she gentles with her mom and her dad and her family, the people that she trusts to love her, regardless of if she, you know, if she bends or if she breaks, they are still going to love her. And I think you showed that so wonderfully that like this is what strong black woman is. Not that strong black woman trope, but this is what
4: a strong woman is, right? So we have matriarch versus patriarch. Yes. And if you read Crimson Hunter, I
3: that really gets into and i'm really specific and deliberate with that because the, and that's the that's the first book in my fairytale Fatale series and it's a reimagining of little red riding hood okay and so i have witches i, I love folklore so i have witches and and then i have werewolves werewolf shifters and and so all the witches are women biological women and all of the the werewolf shifters are biological men and so basically in that book, I create a situation where it, it is a clear matriarchy, but at one point it was a patriarchy and there was a war and the, the, the witches won. And then they put their thumb on the males, but, you know, you know, for society to exist, you still, these people are still together. And so I, I asked myself if there was a power reversal, if you think about it, whether it's between, you know, men and women, if it is between you know african americans or, or or black people and europeans or white people what would that really look like if it was flipped on its head and so i i explored that question really deliberately in in this in that particular in that particular hmm. novel if the people who have been subjected to oppression and they now in power how would they treat those who were so contemptible towards them in the past, would they easily, you know, want to give up their power? Would they want to create an equal society, or feel perhaps that that role reversal may happen again? So I explored that. Would it through in that particular in that particular okay. book? So okay. that's my answer: so, to matriarchy versus patriarchy.
2: What I'm hearing is my TBR is going to be full of N. D. Jones. Well, no. no. Reading is actually
3: me working.
2: Like that's what I. That's the conclusion I came to. It's one of my best conclusions. Equality and equanimity. If society had both of those things, if society were led by equality and led by people who who sound mind and even killed it would be a
4: society that that was more productive and progressive. I I think that it is probably impossible to have that kind of society.
3: I think we can have a society that is far better than what we have today if you people who, who genuinely are out for equitable results. But I think, unfortunately,
4: human nature for too many people is about a hierarchy. And if you feel a
3: need based on whatever shallow level of distinction that you want to offer up to justify your desire to say that you are better than someone, that you should be entitled to X and this group of people should only be entitled to why. Mm -hmm. I think as long as you have people who think like that and that they can justify and rationalize their behavior, I don't believe you'll have the type of society which you mentioned. Well, it makes it crazy. People who think like that in general and who act on it, I would argue that they aren't even the majority of the people. But because they have that type of mentality, they have acquired enough different types of infrastructural powers in society that will allow them to enact their crazy way of thinking into laws that impact billions of people. Yeah. So you don't have to have a majority of the people to feel a certain way. You only need power and access right. of the people. And that is what we, I think, always
4: had. And it is very angering and frustrating Mm -hmm. because
3: if you had certain people in the the right spots, their impact is so great. Yeah. So I guess maybe under today's conditions, it's very hard for me to think that we could ever have a society. In which equality, true equality and attempt at true equality is really that foundational core. Like you
2: just said, there are few,
3: just a few,
2: who are hell-bent on keeping themselves and those who look like them in a position of power and everyone else in the position of other. And And you're right, it is a very... Like scary situation, and reading this book, I I kind of want so badly to, to have a Shona to run to. Like I want a Shona to run to.
3: Yeah, and don't don't we all right wish you had something like that? And they said we will go there, but do you really want to be in a position to have to kill so many people or to have? Members of your society, community die.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: A normal leader, normal people who are thinking in a rational way will say, Let me try every other avenue.
2: Right, right.
3: Before we take up arms. And that's the right type of leader to have. Those are the right type of people who are empowered to be making the decision. It's, it's the ones who don't have that same value of life because they mm-hmm. make different types of decisions. A lot of their decisions are very selfish. Yes. So when you make decisions from a totally selfish place like that, nothing really good comes from it.
4: Mm-mm.
3: And the piece that you said, I mentioned this, this piece, I think I, I thought about this earlier. We mentioned Moth, this clause. One thing I wanted to show in, in this book, because I think it's really true in real life, is that generational
4: trauma. Yes. And that was something that she didn't, fully understanding
3: of her dreams. But so some things that her parents did was because of their experiences. And because of their experiences, they raised her in a certain way. And because mm-hmm. of how she was raised, she treated her kids in a certain way. But that I really wanted to look at that. I think that generational trauma is something that we don't talk about enough. And we don't always recognize the depth of impact.
2: Yes. It's funny you mentioned that, my, my current work in progress, that is the whole foundation of it, how those generational traumas pass down and how they manifest themselves with our health and our predisposition to certain things. And I'm focusing on mother-daughter relationships because I have yet to see one that, that survives the daughter's 22nd 23rd year without going through crazy
1: black writer therapy podcast will be right back you don't want to miss the conclusion of nd jones session on the virtual couch
0: in a world where shadows dance and secrets lurk comes an unforgettable saga of broken souls written by alishan Get ready to embark on a gripping journey through time, a dark Southern coming of age saga that spans over 30 years. Nothing is as it seems. With every turn of the page, secrets unravel, revealing a web of intrigue that will leave you breathless. Breaking is the easy part. Having the courage to look into the mirror of your souls, allowing yourself to be consecrated To rise harmoniously in alignment with self and the universe? That's the hard part. Join John and Vivian on this unforgettable journey where shattered souls rise, courage is tested, and destinies are forged. The Broken Souls series by Ella Sean, a gripping four-book masterpiece that will keep you captivated the very end don't miss your chance to experience this compelling tale of love loss and redemption purchase your copy now and be prepared to have your soul shattered because
1: sometimes the darkest paths lead to the brightest light Welcome back to Black Writer Therapy Podcast.
2: Before we dive into the healing points, I want to
3: hear you read the most difficult scene. Oh, okay. I think you already know how much you want me to read.
2: As much as you want. All right. I'm serious. I love hearing authors read their work. And this is one of my
4: favorite scenes. This is going to be a little bit longer. So let me sit back and get comfortable. This is Hondo speaking. I want you, our children, and a quiet life together.
3: Hondo recalled Moffdett's words the night she told him of her pregnancy. At the time, neither had known the pregnancy would result in the birth of two wonderful children. For a little while, I was able to give her all three, but only for a while, not enough. Not nearly enough time for our family. Don't you dare. A hand connected with his left cheek, quick and stinging. Hondo's eyes hopped open. Did did you slap me? He'd never seen a person look both unrepentant and solemn. And I'll do it again. She knelt before him. I can see it's your time, Harry. I know it's a struggle to hold on, but please. She squeezed his knee. Please. Stay with us a little longer. Wait for your wife. Unlike moffdad Hondo had never dreamed of death. There were times he told her he wished he could take the nightmares on himself to spare her pain. But what guilt was sincerity when one faced the impossibility of true action? No matter either of their feelings, they knew Moffdet would have to carry the burden alone. Now, all Hondo could do was Pray his death wouldn't haunt Moffdad for the rest of her days, preventing her from finding peace, if only during her waking hours. Pounding feet rushed down the hole, and Hondo smiled. In no time, Moffdad knelt before him instead of Chidu, and his smile grew that much wider. Moffdad took Mafaro from him, handing her to Ottawa, who, along with Chidu, Retreated to the other side of the reception area with Herdy. I'm here. Moffat sat beside him, shifting them both until her right leg was on the couch, her back against the armrest, and him wedged between her legs. I have you. She kissed the top of his braided head. Thank you for holding on so long. But you can rest now, Hondo. Let it all fade away and rest. Yes, wife. Hondo had never been this tired. The pain that had plagued him the entire ride to Landley felt like a foreboding shadow eating away at the edges of what remained of Hondo. Husband, father, son, Samhiri. He gave in to it all, beginning with the rise and fall of Mafet's chest under him, her rapidly beating heart, her cold hands that gripped his. Above all, he soaked in the gift they'd given each other. Love, warm, and enduring. You did your best. Hondo wanted to say more, but he felt himself drifting away. A pull he'd fought against, but in Moffat's arms, Hondo knew he'd never been safer. Love, Mm -hmm. love you, always. Moffat heard Mufaro crying. And coughing, she heard her baby calling her name over and again, calling for her Amé and Baba. Moffat heard the front door open and close. She heard Talbot and Malad ask Mrs. Jordan where they should place the bodies of her wards. She heard everything, but only one sound mattered. She listened, and listened. No words.
4: She felt, and felt. No heartbeat. She listened and felt nothing, silence, death. My Hondo is gone. My Dene
3: is gone. She cried, not loudly, not with hysterics, not even tears punctuated with the foulest of curses, but softly against Hondo's head, the scent she so loved tainted by the smell of thanol in blood. Moffde cried harder her throat tightened, her eyes burned and her head pounded, heart liquefied and bones fossilized. And still, that cried. Somewhere, in her delirium, she heard a little voice call out for her. Ame. No, not a little voice. A panic, terrified, shrill. Moffdett opened her eyes difficult when all she wanted to do was forget the sight of her deceased husband. But there he was, in her arms, and no less did for her having closed her eyes to escape the hard truth. Ame, Ame, Mufaro wailed, fighting to get away from Ottawa. Ame, please. Little arms reached for her. Ame, please, please. With more effort than it should have taken, Moffat slid from under Hondo. Carefully, she lowered him to the couch. Moving like she walked in waist high water, Moffat made her way to Mafaro, accepting her daughter as soon as she reached Ottawa. Mafaro wrapped arms and legs around her, a suffocating embrace they both needed. Is Baba gone, too? She knows he is, but she's hoping I'll tell her differently. I wish I could. I wish I could spare my baby the pain of losing her father so soon after the death of her sister, but I can't. God's, I can't protect her any better than I did Fumdel and Danae.
2: Look, I could sit here and listen
4: to you read you all mean? night. Thank you. You don't have to explain why that was so hard to write. I know how hard it was for you to write because it was equally
2: as hard to read and it has everything to do with
4: what you put into that scene that's allowed me to get out of it what I did
2: like everything you put in and I'm not even talking about the research or the beautiful phraseology which all of that was you know
4: great but it is your emotional connection to every word on those pages that allowed me, and I'm sure countless other readers, to fall
2: right there at the edge of of Osa Forest, at the wall to Shona, wrapped around our baby who had expired a town back, and lay there praying
4: for the gods to take Us too. We were right there with her, and so kudos, congratulations on being like this amazing storyteller. Because that's that's what you are. Thank you, Andrea. Um, that's what I want to call you. That was, yeah, beautiful. Okay. Let's have this one last little part to go before we switch gears. You have your themes. You said resilience
2: and family and self love. I added in forgiveness and acceptance.
4: Is this what you hope to foster for your readers with your writing? I'm still like caught up in this. It's so painful. I don't try to manipulate my readers into feeling a certain way.
3: If I read it and I feel that way, probably other people who are of a similar persuasion will probably also feel that way as well. Sometimes we put parts of ourselves that we're kind of unconsciously thinking about in the book and we don't realize it. Mm-hmm. Some things I do on a very conscious, deliberate level but I think there's this undercurrent sometimes that's there as well. There are certain patterns mm-hmm. that we don't realize. That a person who's who's maybe fresh to fresh to the book in a way that you want, to learn, they pick up on that that nuance piece that you yourself may not be aware. Of because sometimes mm-hmm. we are so always sophisticated enough to be in tune to every aspect of right. who we are that could possibly come across in what we write. And I and I enjoy when when people can pull out something that I did not think about. That's that's natural. And I don't know how to how as authors we could possibly account for it. I don't think that we can. Mm-hmm. No. No. And
2: that's the thing. Like you said, the family resilience and self-love. And I was like, yes, and forgiveness, because we have to also be willing to forgive ourselves and we have to be willing to be kind. And and Mofted had to learn these things. As, you know, be to to gain a willing spirit of forgiveness of self. And not just love of self, but also acceptance. And and you have so much sacrifice and loss. And I keep trying to, I want them not to be concurrent. Every time there is a sacrifice, there's also this huge loss. Are you consciously saying, yes, sacrifice requires loss?
3: No, I could tell you, I know. I don't want, I don't believe that sacrifice means that you have to have this great loss. i mean it it's what we talk about like opportunity costs right so you have these choices and you may have five choices but you can't have all of them so you choose one so the opportunity cost is all the other things that you could have done so a person can look at that as technically a loss because you, you didn't do it i think once you just once you label and i'm thinking this through as i'm speaking as well so yeah. understand that I think when we label something a sacrifice, that word itself implies that, that something was lost, that you gave something up to get this. But if you don't define it as a sacrifice, it is just this, then that whole potential loss piece might not exist because you want to defining it in that binary of a sacrifice and
4: loss. hmm Sometimes it simply is. Some things are small, and we can
3: easily absorb them into our life because the impact isn't huge. It's just the big ones that are a lot harder to get around.
2: Okay, I like that because, and I'm thinking about like when when parents had to make a pragmatic decision to in their suffering child's life because there was no way he was going to survive. And again, they made the decision to stay behind because the future belongs to the young. It's the choice we have
3: to make. It really is about that perspective. That's a great example because my dad looked at it as a sacrifice considering what they've been through before. Because she had that perspective, what she wanted from them was different than what they wanted to give so because they didn't do it as a sacrifice as a, a strong decision they were at odds those competing perspectives mm-hmm. impacts how you interact with someone because you're looking at the same thing from two totally different lenses right and that yes interesting question about the whole idea of a sacrifice I think sometimes people use that word also as a way of saying, hey, I'm a victim. Yes. Yes. And it's like, well, you chose to do this. It was your choice. No one asked you to do it. Or maybe someone did. But when some individuals use that word yes. as a form of emotional manipulation. Yes. Let me say that. Yes. Yeah. You kind of.
2: Kind of went where I didn't know where my head was going with the sacrifice and loss. I just realized, like, those two words came to mind a lot. And I didn't feel like there were sacrifices. Those were all, like, I know what I'm doing. This is a decision that I'm making, knowing full well what I'm at risk of losing. I
4: applaud that. Because okay. it's, because it's, we've been talking. We had Yes, it's six fifty-four. I know. I know. Let me get through this last little We have to play the game. That's because
3: I read, I read that, that whole last part of that chapter. I know. And it, it was... was worth it.
2: So we want to move to the segment that I call The Audacity of Black Women Writers. I want to hold space for you to share with the listening audience. What about dealing with the publishing industry? Would drive Andy Jones to seek my couch as a licensed Black writer therapist if I were truly one.
3: Man, I, I think any situation in which so my husband says if anyone ever wants to turn one of your books into to a movie, I'm saying they're all movie worthy. But he said like, he's like make sure that all the characters, all the everyone he hires, all black. I I think if anyone wants to change the heart of my story, the and the characters. They are the heart of the story to to make them what they perceive to be more palatable to the general viewing public. I will have to seek out that couch very much yeah. so because that's the heart of what I write and what I do, and what I feel about
4: my books. So if you take that out, it's not the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Are you traditionally published? No, all my books are
3: self-published.
2: So yeah, if they wanted to change anything, I could see that leading you there. And and when I talk about what it takes to be a successful black woman writer in an industry with a rich history and white supremacy and a decidedly white-centered approach to publishing. I found this article in, on Book Riot, and it's a very short little blurb that I got. i want to hear your thoughts on it. Pan America also acknowledges that the longstanding diversity problem not only lies in editorial, but also in marketing and publicity. There's little available market research on book buyers and readers of color. The absence is seldom discussed, but critical to understanding the lasting biases in the industry. Readers of color may have different preferences or buying habits, different media that they follow or topics that they read about, different ways that they learn about and consume books, the report says. In other words, publishers aren't targeting readers of color enough which perpetuates the lie that diverse books don't sell and forces publishers to put out less books by authors of color. And this it was a much longer article and I'm going to attach it in the show notes. But this was written by Arvan Cerezo February of this year. So, what say you to that?
3: Yeah, I mean a couple different points. Well, traditional publishers Even for all these different places where you can go to market your books, they are very white. So let's say I wanted to promote my book on Excite, most of the people who are their readers are white. Some Black authors who write other groups and probably found a lot more success they are appealing to an audience that are used to being appealed to. When that happens, when publishing companies put out whatever the programming is, and there's always a certain face and feel and vibe to it, that's what you are affirming. And so you don't have to say this other thing doesn't matter or it matters less. It is simply the absence of it. And so because I choose to write, what I write, put the images in front of people, I say that that is a struggle. Now, I want to be really clear. I am not saying that you have Black writers who write Black characters with Black issues who aren't successful. You have those people. That is absolutely true. ta Coates is a perfect example of that, Mm -hmm. but he's not the norm. You can always pick these people and hold them up to say, hey, look at this. I can do this too. I know this is a bias. I wonder if some of us have chosen to write X because we don't want to be pigeonholed or we want to have a greater chance of being exposed. I can understand the pull to do that. There are some writers who if I didn't see a picture of them, I would have never known they were a Black writer. As I say that, the other thought that comes to mind is, what responsibility, if any, do authors of color, Black women writers, have to this
4: Black community to write yeah. stories with people who look like us? Yeah, I throw
3: that out there. There's a conversation to be had about that.
4: Yeah, I yes. feel my
3: own personal need that it is important to have certain types of books out there in the domain for people to be exposed to. Like El Penelope, she's writing the Isakai. We need people who are willing to sacrifice. It's a decision that yes. we make. You understand that you may not have the level of exposure that is potentially out there if you made a different type of decision. So in that wow. way, it could potentially be viewed as a sacrifice. Hmm.
2: Attaching that sacrifice to the choice to write books featuring whole oh. and well-rounded, fully realized Black women, yeah, that would beg to differ. Was it worth it?
4: Is it worth it? Yeah. I guess it depends on your purpose and your goal. Right. And if it works
3: for you, then it was a sacrifice. Okay. I'm going to take a
2: piece of a quote from you. Is it fair to say that there is a global need for awareness, accountability, and action when it comes to debunking the master narrative that Black people don't read and that books written by Black and about Black women won't appeal to a wider audience? Because I'm just sitting here like, well, why? Why is it then that it's expected for Black Women readers to read books written by and about white women. Why is it expected that those books are going to appeal to us? And the same is not true in reverse. I mean, what can we do to change that narrative?
3: I think also the question is is it really expected that it appeals to us? Or is it a fact that no one really cares if it does or not? See, sometimes Hmm. when your choices are limited, it's either read this. Or you read nothing, depending on what is being sold, the Black buyer base is really what is always considered in this vein. What they recognize is that if we put it out there and there's really few other things to choose from, if they want it, they will buy it. And why? Because we have. We've shown that in in the past. We might continue with an author because they've written okay books in the past. We really would like if they included more of this. But we'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. Black people have always been forced to pivot and accept stuff, whereas right. in general, white people have very seldom had to make those conscious pivot decisions because it's really always been there for them, unless they are part of a of a group that has been systematically oppressed. Again, black people who, who engage in different types of cultural consumerism, mm-hmm. because we can recognize. That something is good and that we like it and we don't mind supporting it and doesn't have right. to always look and sound like us for us exactly. to enjoy it. So we are much more open and giving and accepting of other people's stuff and we rock it if we like it. Mm-hmm. And no one has to convince us of it if there is a psychological dimension to how things are marketed. Mm-hmm the more that our stuff is put out there, the more everyone is saying that it's legitimate. Right, right. It's good. We really, we keep pushing it out there, whereas it's really considered to be the norm and not some exception.
2: Right. That's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast, because I needed some Black writer therapy. Just thinking about Querying and marketing my books because I am a Black writer and I write Black books, as opposed to just being a writer who writes books in this genre. And my characters will look like me, but who cares? Black women definitely benefit from having books with characters that look like them and experiences they
4: have experienced. But I, I also believe that white women specifically. The white, educated,
2: book-loving white woman would greatly benefit from reading books written by Black women because they need to see, be able to recognize the whole of a Black woman and not just the nonsense they're being fed. But you're right, they are just not willing to forego the idea that I'm not going to be able to relate to any of it, so I'm not going to pick it up i want to get your opinion i was jotting down my notes black women writers are the modern soul healers for those who are forgotten dismissed and diminished. i read your your response to someone who had read barely gold and your inspiration and i thought wow we will take on like these topics and we will write about them in earnest and not sugarcoat any of it give it the way it needs to be given and in so many ways that is healing someone sees me not as a xyz but as this thing that really happened and so i i jot it down on my notebook, that we Black women writers are the modern soul healers for those who are forgotten, dismissed, and diminished.
3: Forgotten, dismissed, and diminished. So barely gold. All of that's kind of like the themes of the big issue. But I think in many ways, that's how you can really
4: describe the existence of what it means to be a Black woman. Oh, gosh. Okay. It's... And it's so, it's really, you know, it's really, it's really sad. And when you think about just the abortion, a society should not exist in which there is no room where a woman cannot decide anything with her body. And
3: once you look at, the smaller groups are most vulnerable, the ones who are forgotten, who are dismissed, yep. who are diminished. Those are the ones who are the most heavily and negatively impacted. Yes. And I remember teaching Roe versus Wade. Right. And I taught it as if it was just a given, the same way I taught right. like Marbury versus Madison, right? It was just a given. We never talked about it as if it would no longer exist, but now it doesn't.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's a frightful time to be a female, especially of a certain of childbearing years.
2: I mean, but in that vein, it's a frightful time to be anything that has been amended into the Constitution as a right, forgotten, dismissed, and diminished. I think a lot of people
4: will fall under that umbrella, unfortunately, in this country. Yeah. Okay. We are going to play a game. We need a game after that. I know. Lord, we
3: got heavy, didn't we? You ready? You said I had to think of an answer in 15 seconds. I don't know. And I I had to write down these little hashtags you told me I had to say. So I have a little little post-it note right here. I have been
2: the exact same mm-hmm. way for this game. Wait, now let me make sure. What is the hashtag? These the hashtags. Hashtag?
3: Oh, my goodness. goodness. Yeah. So you, you remember the rules. I, I remember I had 15, 15 seconds to, to say a word. You put 15 seconds in those directions. And you gave me three hashtags.
4: I have them written right here and I'm looking at them. And look okay. at it said, if I take more than 15 seconds, I'm going to lose points. <laughs> I did that to build in the pressure. pressure. And that pressure is keenly
2: felt. Oh, my Lord, this, this is, a, is easy. This a, is my favorite part of the whole podcast. To be honest, and y'all squirt so much. I just don't understand. I don't understand. Well, okay. you won't it, This It's called Tell the Whole Story. And what we're looking for is personal anecdotal stories that are inspired by whatever word I call out. So I've taken the word story, and so we have five words. One starts with S-T-O-R-Y. And I went in today, and I revamped my words because
4: I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be fresh for you, just for you. Oh, man. All right. okay. Now, after
2: you tell your anecdotal story, remember to add your hashtag.
3: Uh, I have to choose from these three. I got it.
2: Yeah. Book was, it, writer's life,
3: or writing while black. Right. Exactly.
4: Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes, ma'am. All right. Your first word is scandalous. I don't write erotica, even though writer life. I did not know scandalous. Okay,
3: yeah, I don't write traditional erotica. I've had authors—I mean, not authors—I had readers to to write that they thought that my stuff was erotic because I write. I do write open door sex scenes, which are great, and we all should read them. I don't think any of that is scandalous. I do think that you have have readers who like clean stuff, and that they should read content warnings before writing the so complaints. I'm
4: I'm going to say the writer life, not scandalous, but baby, I'm going to tell you what
2: I write erotica, and everybody thinks that erotica is all about like you know, deviance and this, this, that, and the third. Right. And for me, most of the erotica happens outside of the steamy scenes. The steamy scenes are just steamy scenes, but most right. of the erotica happens okay. outside of that because, like, for me, eroticism is kind of that, it's a, a spiritual transformation, like transformative energy that makes everything else, like, longer, better. like. Anything can okay. be erotic. Like making you. tea can be an erotic experience if you're in that moment and you are giving yourself just to that moment. It's the thing that elongates time and still allow you to experience it like that. So, but you know that's not what people mean. What the, the And I know that. Okay, the average people assume eroticism or erotica equals
3: dirty sex. And and that's because that's what people write and label it as erotic, right? Yes. I did read something one time and, and I, I'm never going to, the person was trying to tease out the difference in the different levels of like, I'm never going to get it. But it was a, such a great point about the difference as far as like erotic novels. And, but I can't remember. It's like one of those things you read and you're like, oh, yes, that makes sense. And clearly my mom didn't, hold on to it but i think when people reach up in this it's explicit the word they use is erotic thank you yes
2: because it's mostly explicit because eroticism is kind of a sacred thing but also it's been perverse by those who who lost their, their 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 feline
3: that that that's a, that's a good word okay so if i misused it but there. okay so there we have it
2: yes all
3: right, we're gonna move on to the letter. T E A S E. I have tea every morning. When when I go into work, I have tea. I have I add a little bit of, of light agave with it. And that has nothing to do with 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 writing, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna call I'm gonna put hashtag bookish because Every day at work, I have to read a book, have to work it out, and that helps get me going in the morning because I don't do coffee or anything like that.
2: Oh, I'm so happy that you are a tea because every other writer's is like, I just need wine and coffee, wine and coffee. Yeah, I don't drink either. So me it's either. Just... So I'm. I just spend all my money on gourmet teas, loose leaf tea,
3: now that's Karen scandalous. Tea. What? I just what is is that it... That's scandalous? Just tea.
2: Yeah, but look, that I always have Pete with me, always.
4: Cool bing. Okay. Oh, offensive. Offensive. Well, I just entered I don't know a little while
3: ago. A fear of faith. I I had I hired a narrator, and he he just went through it. And so before I gave him the book, I wanted to read over it because I I wrote it many years ago. And I read it through a lens of, is there anything in here that could potentially be offensive in a way that I didn't think about it when I first wrote the book? So I found some stuff. I don't know if it was like too offensive, but it was some things that I thought maybe might be a little bit questionable that I, I reframed, I, re, I rewrote. And so that is, I, I would say, I think that's right in life. I don't think most of us will go back and, and do that because when you have a certain number of books under your belt it's uh, it's really time consuming to go back mm-hmm. and do it but i think if you can like in in, in with the audiobook it's it's a worthwhile endeavor maybe try mm-hmm. to have you no know, new language make new ways of referring to different groups of people so right. we try not i try not to be offensive
4: sometimes we as authors inadvertently or mm-hmm. cool things. we are Revolution. Revolution. I at
3: Howard, I went to Howard for, for two of my programs, masters and then this other doctoral program. And I remember I always talked about, you know, we, we need to have a, a revolution. I majored in Black politics. And I still think we need to have a revolution. I think revolutions can take m- many faces and forms. And I think it, yeah. it, it does. I think what we're doing is the form of, of a revolution, you know, really changing. Or exposing people to things they maybe never exposed to, broadening, broadening the field to be you know more more inclusive, not waiting to be invited to do so, mm-hmm. but engaging in that ourselves. I think that is a form of of a revolution of being a revolutionary. I think I told you I, I engage in I do self care PD, and I, I use as a title a portion of a quote from from Audre Lord, and when she talks about. That, you know, caring for herself is an act of, of uh-huh. like, political warfare. Yes. And, you know, what that means to be, you know, to be a Black woman. So I think all mm-hmm. of that can be looked at as revolutionary. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're having, like, this type of physical, but anytime you're kind of, like, bucking the norm, challenging the norm, or, or, or yeah. pulling, pulling the, you know, you know, shedding the light on something, pulling the... The the coat bag or whatever you want to say, that that could be looked at as being a revolutionary act. Yeah, And I will say, hashtag writing while Black. Get power to the people.
4: All right. <laughs> oh, yes, ma'am. Like, this is like the worst Black fits ever. <laughs> have a good one. Your yeah. last one. You're really good. What? Yeah. Uh-oh. 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 Why word? I don't know. I know. Okay, so your last word is yawn. Like yawn. Well, I will say that I
3: try not to write when I'm tired. I think when I'm tired, I think when people are tired that poor decisions are made. And so if I'm yawning and then and then my eyes are always water when I get to that point in, in the evening. And I know nothing really good is going to come from me if I was forcing the issue just uh-huh. to put words on the page. And so I will say, if I'm yawning, I don't need to write. And then I will say that that's hashtag writer life.
2: You did so good. I know. You did really good. Thank you for playing my game. You got
4: all your points. I'll look, y'all act like y'all winning a prize. <laughs> but guess what? We're at That's the it. end. We're at the end. And you did great with the game. I mm-hmm. have enjoyed
2: talking with you as much as I knew I would. I knew I was going to be like, I'm going to soak up some wisdom today. And I I did. I did exactly that. So I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come sit on my couch. I want to also let you know that I probably will be calling on you for a group therapy session. where we-, we all get on a Zoom and talk shop and talk other things that begin with essay and see how it goes
3: <laughs> I thank you i didn't really know what to expect but i i respect your online presence it was really rewarding and it really was a dialogue and i appreciate the kind words i appreciate that you gleaned from the book especially Mark really what I was going for, what was on my heart and in my mind when I voted, and that you get Sometimes I'll read a review and I could tell like, this this reader really got it. And you did. And that makes me feel really warm. It's rewarding. And so I appreciate everything you said about about Death and Destiny trilogy and about Moth Dead's flaws as well. That really means a lot to me
4: thank you
2: thank you i wouldn't be a great therapist if i didn't give you homework because okay. that's what we do so your homework which which black woman writer do you think needs to be the next to uh, to get an invite to my couch
4: yeah i can who has your vibe
2: i mean
3: or not, I can go with someone without my bio, But the, I just want to know Daryl Ray and and August. But if you haven't already asked her, have you have you spoken to L. Penelope or Leslie Penelope?
4: Mm.
3: No, she's I haven't. Wonderful. she's a wonderful person. She lives in Maryland as well. She's a she's a um, traditionally published author. She's won like these great awards, and she's a sister who, who writes. I mean, we she basically said. Assume that all my characters are black unless I tell you otherwise. I was on a panel with her one day. She said, I'm like, that is absolutely true. She's very good. I, she's very busy, but I think when she can, she does stuff
4: like this. Okay. It would be and wonderful. She, Is she fantasy as well? Yep. She's fantasy. YA. Okay.
2: I read that too. I love fantasy. Like, that is one of my favorite genres to read. I can't write it nothing in here will do it but i love reading writing yeah. okay then miss l penelope your friend just called you out and i'll be uh, i'll be sending you an email from black writer therapy podcast will
3: do okay mm-hmm. all right thank you for your time thank you for your time it was your time that you do you, do you know it was our time
2: <laughs> From your time, it was so much fun talking with you. Same, and I'll send you like graphics and stuff a little bit later on okay. um, of course. for promotion and all that stuff. And
4: okay, that'll Miss be that. Me-
2: yes, 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 yes. That's me,
4: Miss Natalie. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Doctor,
2: Doctor Jones.
4: That's it <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm a good evening All right, take care. Okay. okay Bye.
2: Bye. <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining me for this session of Black Writer Therapy. Be sure to follow and leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, And keep the conversations going on Instagram using our hashtag Black Writer Therapy. I'm your host and unlicensed therapist, Ella Sean, reminding you to be kindest to yourself first, always, and in all ways ways. See you guys next week. Bye.